So you may have gathered from the handout that I want to talk about the ethical precepts <laughs> this morning. And I want to do this for a few reasons. Uh, one of them is, is that uh, Sylvia is going to be starting next week, sort of going back to the foundations of practice. And in many ways, taking some time before that to look at the ethical precepts is a very, is a very good foundation. I think Sylvia's intentions over the next weeks are really to go to the core of what this practice is and go back to some of the basics, some of the foundations, and working with the precepts uh, today. And then what I'll, what I'll do is I'll invite you, if you so choose, to give special focus to the ethical precepts in the next week as your take-home practice or at-home practice. Um, this will give, um, I think, a good basis for sort of hand the baton to Sylvia in the next weeks. So that, that was one of my intentions. And also, I just love the precepts in many ways, and I wanted to talk about them. Uh, so what I want to do is talk first a little bit generally about the ethical precepts, and then talk about the five, what we call the five lay precepts. These are the precepts that are on the sheet of paper. And talk about each of them somewhat briefly. And then thirdly, explore a little more fully what it means to practice the precepts in our daily lives and to give some very brief uh, possible instructions for your next week. That's what I want to do. So in some ways, we may, we may think of the ethical precepts and think, well, I'm an ethical person. You know, what do I have to learn about the ethical precepts? I don't go around hurting people deliberately, and I try to be uh, clear with my speech. So I'm, you know, what do I really need to explore? Why do I need to explore the ethical precepts? And, or you may not feel that. You may feel like, oh, there's something, there's something to learn here. But in many ways, I think I want to suggest or inspire or re-inspire you to consider working with the precepts as actually a very deep practice. It's a practice that works not just on the most gross level of following certain rules or guidelines, but it actually goes deep into our sense of who we are and really our moment-to-moment experience is very much, can be very much informed by the precepts. In traditional Buddhist training, the dimension of ethics, or uh, sila, or shila, S-I-L-A, in the uh, Pali and Sanskrit, is one of the three main areas of training, traditionally, along with uh, what we usually translate as meditation and wisdom. We might, we might talk about this as the training for uh, ethical action, first of all, secondly, the meditation training, and thirdly, the wisdom training, that helps us have the insight and understanding of our minds and the, way, and the way things work and the nature of suffering and freedom. And sometimes, again, um, ethics or sila is seen as the beginning. And once you kind of get that down, then you go on to the really advanced subjects of meditation and wisdom. But I think, again, in many ways, although it's very important to have an ethical foundation for practice, in, in many ways, we can see, as we go deeper in meditation and wisdom, we also can have a deeper sense of, of ethics, of, of these core principles. Historically, the, there, when the Buddha was teaching, there were rules established for the monks and nuns. And the precepts evolved out of those rules. You know, for the monks and nuns, there are some 200-plus um, precepts, you know, dictating quite a, a number of um, aspects of life. And, but in a Spirit Rock, and generally, we go by what are called the five lay precepts. And all the precepts are elaborated in the uh, Vinaya. And I, I love the, the literal meaning of Vinaya. This is the, the part of the canon, or the part of the uh, text, which is particularly concerned with ethics, that literal translation of Vinaya 
is that which leads away from remorse. That which leads away from remorse is sort of the, the body of the, of the teachings. And a way that I love to think about the precepts, that's very helpful for me and maybe for many of you, is to think about the precepts as providing a kind of container for practice that is a container of safety, that lets us have some safety for ourselves and that promises a kind of safety for others if we're practicing the ethical precepts. It gives a kind of, it really is about a kind of integrity and harmlessness to others and to ourselves that we, that we cultivate more and more. You know, you know, I've said, I've mentioned a few times this wonderful phrase which uh, Guy Armstrong uh, told me about about six months ago. This phrase, one who loves oneself will not harm another. One who loves oneself will not harm another. And I think that is such a, for me, such a powerful statement. I mean, we could take it in a lot of directions. We could say that what we're working on when we practice is the ability to love ourselves and others. And that in many ways, we need to start with ourselves. We need to start with being with our own minds and hearts and develop the ability to see through the ways that it's hard to love ourselves, the ways that we judge ourselves or are harsh towards ourselves. And we can see in many ways that that's deeply connected with us being harsh towards others. And so, and we can also, uh, I think, appreciate the way that when there's that quality of love present, it's very, it's very difficult to harm others. So we could take that statement also as partly a statement of the causes of uh, suffering in the world, the causes of harming in the world. That in many ways, um, what causes violence? The great Buddhist teacher Shanti Davis said, um, the world is consumed by insanity by those who don't understand themselves well. You know, and part of that is an inability to really love oneself. You know, and you know, I sometimes like to think of this program that I saw, which influenced me quite a few years ago, by Bill Moyers, which was on uh, teenage uh, murderers, and they interviewed the, mur- the uh, teenagers who had killed others, and to a person, they almost all said, I was in so much pain, I wanted someone else to feel the pain. No ability really to love oneself. There's so much pain that they wanted, in a way, you might say, to pass on the pain. And you could say that that's what people who harm others do. They, in some ways, they want to pass on the pain. Governments also do that. They pass on the pain. You know, when In some ways, the country can't really deal with a certain pain that's there. And so when we, when we take the precepts, we go in the other direction. All of the precepts, in a way, are about non-harming. If you look at these precepts, you could see that they're all about not harming others. Of, of taking as training guidelines that we will, as much as we can, refrain from harming others. So if you look at the five precepts that we'll, that we'll look at in more depth in a moment, they're all about, they all could be seen as non-harming, that the first one, uh, which is usually expressed in terms of refraining from killing, could be broadly be talked about in terms of non-harming. And the, the second one, the precept not to steal or not to take that which is not given, could also be seen in terms of not harming others. Sometimes we think of um, um, property almost like a, as an extension of ourselves. And so we could also see that as being linked to non-harming. And then the precepts about sexuality and speech and intoxicants all are in a way about being very careful with energies that um, the use of which we can very easily hurt others with our sexuality or our speech or through the use of intoxicants. So I think that the precepts are most basically, if you have to think about them, they're really about setting ourselves up so we don't harm ourselves or others. In a way, it's like we become like, I was thinking of the, um, the signs in Berkeley where I live, you are now entering a nuclear-free zone. And I think that it's almost like 
if we're following the precepts, we could wear a t-shirt that says, you know, I don't know, um, peace practitioner in training. <laughs> you are entering a, sa a relatively safe zone. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, and it's like that, that we, that's where the precepts take us. We aspire towards being people that, even though people, of course, project and do all sorts of things, if they could, as it were, be with us in a, in a way that knew us, they could feel safe. It's really establishing this zone of safety around us. That's what the precepts do, both to ourselves and to others. And that, that kind of safety is, in a way, the precondition of practice. Because we need to be safe in order to explore. It's as it were, what we do in practice is we have to have the kind of safety, so we move almost from what we might call survival mode to exploration mode. That's what we do in our practice. We, we move from being concerned, oh my gosh, if this happens, you know, psychically, we think, or in an in inner way, we think, I won't survive this. I won't survive that person's comment or this situation. And we kind of get on alert where we're, you know, I think you all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we get on alert, you know, either interpersonally or because of some, something that may happen. And in that sort of situation, it's hard to actually explore because we're mostly concerned with survival. That's why safety is so important. When we create safety, we can more easily explore what's there. And we can, we can have that safety to go really deeply and to explore the deeper roots of our suffering, of our, of our confusion, as well as of our happiness. Um, Thomas Merton ha, ha, um, said in a, in a beautiful uh, text that's that comes from a, a book that was just published called The Inner Experience. He wrote it in 1960 and for some reason the Vatican censors wouldn't let it be published until like 1998 or something. I'm not quite sure why he died in 1968. Anyway, it's a beautiful text and he says this, the inner self is precisely that self. And this is the inner self which, which needs the safety to come out. He compares the inner self to a wild animal, a shy wild animal. The inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. That self is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful, in silence, when the animal is untroubled and alone. He or she cannot be lured by anyone or anything because he or she responds to no lure except of divine freedom. And that's, I think, we try to set up the conditions especially with the precepts, so that shy, wild animal in all of us can, can come out more and can, can learn and can shed some of, the, uh, some of the survival mechanisms, can shed some of those, can see which of those are really not necessary anymore. Maybe a last thing to say generally about the precepts is that they're very important to have in a community. The ethical precepts are very important to have as sort of publicly acknowledged that this is the way we operate. You know, we, I think many of us know that over the last years in this country, there have been a lot of ethical abuses by spiritual authorities, people in power concerning money, power, sexuality especially. And many of those have occurred where the ethical precepts haven't always been so clear. One of the things I think is strong in this community is that those precepts are, are clearer. And it's, I think it's also very important just to have the precepts be right at the center to really, not, not so much to have a sort of Puritan or Victorian superego functioning to watch out for everything, <laughs> not, not, not in that sense, but more to just have, it be, have there be a simplicity. You know, and one can look historically or look at you know, the current crises with Catholic priests, or you know, it's, it's, there's a history in Buddhism that's not always very pretty, and there's been a lot of scholarship recently, for example, about how in 20th century Japan, uh, before and during World War II, there was a close collaboration between the Zen establishment and Japanese militarism. 
You know, and there's, there's, there are pretty stunning books. One of them is called Zen at War, which, which, um, which show that. And, it's, um, and one way to look at why that could happen is that uh, the, the, the ethics, which are very, very clear in the teachings of the Buddha, just were not so prominent. You know, and I think it's, we, it's, um, it's very possible to, to have uh, sort of be people try to trick us out of the simplicity of the ethics. You know, in the case of Japan, it was the force of nationalism. And they could say, and, and, you know, and, and, and also maybe some confusion about what we might call the, the absolute level and the relative level. At the absolute level, it's said often, especially in Zen, there's no birth and death. And that sometimes became used, some confusion between that level and the relative level where there's, where there's, uh, there, a lot of, most of what we do is choosing the courses of action which we take to be uh, good, which we take to be ethical. And, and so there's, um, somehow what happened was that some of the statements which we can find in spiritual traditions uh, about, you know, birth and death not being the final story were manipulated, and there was a loss of the, the uh, clarity about ethics. And so that's, I think, that's another, it's something quite important. I think it's less of a danger maybe here, and we're very aware of some of those histories and some of the uh, scandals of the last 30 years in the United States. But I think that's another important reason why, why attention to the precepts is very crucial. The, now, now moving on to the five basic precepts, the five lay precepts. The, the first precept is the precept that we have here stated, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. And this generally in Buddhist tradition is taken to be the most important precept, the first sort of the, the most significant precept. Uh, in one of the Buddhist texts it says that non-harming is the distinguishing mark of the Dharma to be a being that operates more out of kindness, out of love, out of compassion, because the act of harming is taken to be that which follows upon hatred. And there may also be greed in there, and, and certainly a lot of delusion. So when we take these precepts, part of what we're doing is we are trying to limit the effect of the what are called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And hatred is particularly a source of the intention to harm. The precept itself refers to refraining from the deliberate or intentional killing of any living being. That's, that's the, the actual meaning of the precept. Let me read you something from, from some of the suttas. Laying aside violence in respect of all beings, both those which are still and those which move, one should not kill a living creature, nor a cause to kill, nor approve of others' killing. Elsewhere it says, Abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings, one abstains from this, without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. That, that would express that the very developed sense of the precept, maybe in, in, the, in the mind and heart of the Buddha. Now what we do is we try to move in that direction. And the, the, the practice of the precept is one that it's not like we, we say, we find ourselves wanting, and we just say, oops, I guess I'm not you know, fit for the spiritual life. You know, it's more that this is, as, as we say, it's a training precept. And we continually find, and a lot of what it is, it sets up a guideline so that when things come up in our life, particularly when we enter a kind of a gray area where, oh, does the precept hold here? Does it not? You know, should I be a vegetarian? You know, should I, um, what about, what about those nasty flies in my house? You know, what should I do with that? Well, what it does is it sets up a kind of a light bulb which goes on and it says, this is a place for, for practice. I can begin to look at my motivation. I can begin to see what's there. So think of the precepts as training precepts, not as super ego-instructed guidelines from above that 
mean we're going to have bad karma if we disobey them. They're training, they're training precepts, and they're, they're ones that in many ways we keep on not quite making. You know, perhaps we work well with the precepts in, a, in, in the grossest of ways, but as Thich Nhat Hanh once said, because of the fact of there being microorganisms and even flies, we're always in some ways killing small beings. Maybe even when we boil water, we are, we are killing small beings. So it's really a question of being aware of that and trying to minimize the harm we do and be as aware as possible and work with, and work with uh, one's intentions. You may have heard in the, one of the quotations that I gave from the Buddha that the Buddha said not to approve of others' killing. And there is a social dimension in the precepts, as well as referring to personal experience. And Thich Nhat Hanh, when he expresses the precepts in his version, um, and it's in, it's in the, particularly in the, the book called Interbeing, and it's also in the book that some of you have read called Being Peace, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about the first precept in this way, or he expresses it in this way. Do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. And so that, when we start to see it in that context, it starts to make, the precept starts to become actually a little more complex, doesn't it? You know, what does it mean to follow the precept when I'm a citizen of a country which has capital punishment? Or, of course, which, which kills others in, in wars? Now, there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, complexities about those issues, but what I think is invited is for us to inquire into them and to see those, that social dimension as part of our ethical practice. That's challenging, isn't it? That's quite challenging. You know, but it's, I, think it's, I think one can say that that dimension of the precepts is there. The question is, I'll, I'll give a brief answer here. Does anyone, and maybe we can do more, Rose, in the, in the discussion, does anyone talk about ecocide or the killing of all living beings in relation to the precept? Well, a lot, of, a lot of Buddhists who are trying to bring a contemporary application to environmental issues would do that. They would, they would make the connection. They would say that the precept gives us a basis for an environmental ethics, we might say. And they, want to, they would want to go in that direction. Let's, let's return to that a little, little bit more. So I think we can see from looking at the, the first precept that there are, different way, there are really a few different ways that we work with the precept, with any given precept. First of all, we can use the precept as a kind of a, a, um, a principle and to make sure that we're not in some way violating it in a gross way. Then we start to look into the gray areas and we start to look into our intentions. What's our motivation? when we get in a gray area, what's happening? And we also can see that there's also a social dimension. So the full practice of the precepts would involve uh, working both with the precept as an external reminder and then doing more inner work when we get into gray areas, but also not forgetting that it also extends into our interrelationships with others on, on a wide scale. The second precept is uh, reads like this, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. Traditionally, this meant that for monks and nuns, that they should accept the four, what are called the four requisites, food and clothing and shelter and medicine, uh, only when they were offered, that they shouldn't sort of go out and say, well, I need some food, I'll take this, but that they should only accept it when, when it was offered. For lay people, it meant simply not to, not to steal. And again, um, what's very interesting for us, many of us may be very, very good in, in, the, in not breaking the, the gross meaning of the precept or not violating that, but what's very interesting are all these little gray areas, you know, that come up, you know. You know, I have a, I have a, um, um, let, let's say that I have a, I work for a nonprofit. I'm not paid very much. Is it, break, is it violating the precept to take home a little more supplies from the office? How about surfing the internet? 
on company time, you know, or uh, what does it mean to accept certain kinds of social privilege in a system in which some people are not are exploited? Is that theft? Is that a kind of is that a kind of stealing? These are not easy questions. These are but these are really some of the questions that we're invited to to explore, and the the precept related to stealing particularly reminds us to look at the qualities of greed and wanting in our mind, uh, to see what it is that leads us to get into the gray areas. You know, whether it would be that, that question of what we do with nonprofits or what we do on our tax returns. These are, these are some of the interesting areas that we might be looking at. Um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how greed and wanting work in our mind. You know, a, a few years ago, uh, my colleague uh, Diana Winston and I, we taught a class in Berkeley called Greed Management. <laughs> and for the final exam, we went to the opening week of, um, it just so happened that Bed Bath & Beyond had opened <laughs> in El Cerrito. And we, our final exam, we did walking meditation in a new Bed Bath & Beyond for, <laughs> for half, half an hour. And we're instructed to watch our minds and, you know, and to say, well, I didn't know that those products even existed, but I can see how they, they really are important. <laughs> uh, and it, it, was, it was fascinating to really see just how, how much greed can actually be there. Even when, you know, yes, I really could use the, um, what, the, the stand on top of my television set that lets another little electronic device sit there in that six inches of space that otherwise wouldn't be used. <laughs> um, that's what I learned. By <laughs> um, and it's also, it's also to look at these larger social questions. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh interprets the precept in this way. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. And again, the Buddha says, let one not, not cause to steal, nor approve of others stealing. So I think we, there is that social dimension there from the beginning. The third precept is about sexuality. And I think most, uh, for our purposes, it really goes back most basically to the quality of non-harming. Also, I think, to looking at, at uh, greed and whore or how desire can overwhelm our sense of the precepts. Classically, the precept was, well, it was understood for monks to mean and nuns to mean celibacy. And for lay people in classical uh, Buddhist countries, it was primarily understood in terms of not committing adultery. I think for, for our times, I think the notion of non-harming as the core of the guideline is the most basic. The, the training principle says, for the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. And it's really to, I think, to let the precept be a kind of guide as to how we deal with this very, very powerful energy. How is it possible to explore and express sexuality without hurting others, without hurting ourselves, without falling into all sorts of delusion or projection that might serve our own, our own greed in some way. And so for, for many of us, again, we may follow the precept in the gross way of not really doing anything horrific, but the Precept also invites us to be really clear in when we get again in these, these so-called gray areas. You know, and really, it's really, again, to maybe remind us when we get in some territory where we feel a strong sexual energy and, we can, and, and we're not sure whether it's really the right thing to do, we can come back to the precept. That's how, in many ways, we can see the precepts as um, protecting they can protect us from really damaging or hurting other people who are ourselves. And again, it's not to be uh, Puritan about it, but it's really to take us back to our intentions as much as we know them. And, our, and a lot of times we can think our intentions are good and we may find out a week or two later. 
that they 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 are problematic. But it's it's really to to bring up the question of intention, and really it's it's really to ask us to inquire into the gray areas. And from the social perspective, we could also ask questions about whether following the precept also means to question the abuse of sexuality in our society, the way that people's bodies are objectified in order to sell commodities, particularly women's bodies, you know, and their whole industries based on this. And for many people, that is a violation of the precept, and that to follow the precept means to work, whether it's with education or with, one, with one's uh, children or in one's community, to really work towards that. And of course, the, the dangers of the heritage of Victorianism are great, so it's, it's a lot of delicate balances to play here. But it's really to, to look carefully at what's happening in the society and to think that the precept isn't just about what I personally do with a few people, but it also applies to the web of interrelationships in, with that, in which I'm involved. The fourth precept is the precept of wise speech. And historically, in Buddhist tradition, this along with the first precept were taken as the most important ones. For many of us in our lives nowadays, uh, the precept about speech may be the important, most important precept that we actually practice and that we actually pay attention to just because we are talking so much. And if we're not talking with others, we're talking to ourselves somewhat nonstop. And it's, it's really a precept that there's amazing ability to, to look into. I remember, and sometimes it just takes like something shaking us a bit. I remember when I was beginning practice, it was like over 20 years ago, I had a friend and we were, we were very close and we talked a lot. And she told me, you know, I don't think you practice right speech very well. <laughs> and I think I think that was actually right speech on her part, but she was she she was saying you know you're not so careful with a lot of things you say, especially to me. <laughs> and it really I I you know it's one of those interactions that I remember now, you know, which means that something that I I guess I could listen at the moment, and that there really was something to hear, and it really made me wake up and really look at my speech. And it's something that I think. Uh, many of us could really do with great, with great profit, to really be careful again. The, the teachings on wise speech, which we've explored here a few months ago, uh, have four main guidelines, which, which I like to express as being truthful, helpful, um, open-hearted or, or kind, and having clear intentions, or being speaking in, at the appropriate time and place. Something around those four dimensions of speech are the guidelines. And they're very powerful ones. You know, I have, I have them written next to my telephone. And, and I think I've told people sometimes when I go to meetings, I, I write them on sheets of paper and hold them in front of me as I'm at a meeting. And very helpful. And again, the spirit of the precepts is to have us inquire. They're training precepts. They're not to say, oops, I blew wise speech or right speech again. I'm you know, I'm just blowing the precepts. It's more to say, okay, I'm going in this direction. I'm going to find myself in the gray areas a lot. And that's the spirit of this practice of the precepts. And with speech, it's going to happen an awful lot. And so it's very helpful to review these uh, dimensions of wise speech and to really look into that. It's, it's actually a practice, as, I've, as I like to say, that when, if we can follow this in our daily lives, our practice can really accelerate because we do it so much, and we get so much feedback pretty quickly from, from others, especially. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh said about wise speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. And so it's, it's an invitation to look at our personal interactions and also to look at the, the whole society and the way that speech is used or misused. You know, the way that, that lying is, seems acceptable in certain parts of our society. And to look, it might be to look at the media or look at education. The last of the five precepts 
is the precept about uh, being very careful with the energy of intoxicants. Um, this could mean anything which really shifts consciousness in a major way. Thich Nhat Hanh likes to talk about this precept as involving actually our taking in of media as well as food. Anything that we take in that really shifts consciousness, we have to be careful about. Um, and it's a, it's a precept that, again, there are different interpretations of. Some interpret the precept, as Thich Nhat Hanh does, to mean abstinence from alcohol and other drugs. Um, but I think for probably for most of us, it has to do with really being aware that this is a, is a, is a, is a territory where we can get in trouble. There's this very interesting story of a, a Thai Buddhist who was, who was renowned for having great virtue, and someone, um, someone challenged him and said, just break one of the precepts. And he said, I can't really do it, but the easiest one to do, I'll just, you know, I'll just break one precept. And he said, the, the only one I can do is to get drunk. But then, unfortunately, he got drunk and he broke the other four. <laughs> so it's sort of a, sort of a cautionary tale there. <laughs> Um, again, a very strong energy. For some people, working with the precepts might mean to stay totally away from that territory, you know, particularly if there's some physiological tendency, as some people have, to when there's even a little bit of use of alcohol or other drugs to just go in a certain place where one gets out of control. For many people, it may be to use it with moderation. And to, to, but to be also be careful of any, any boundaries that one is getting close to where, uh, where some of the qualities of mind, such as greed, hatred, and delusion, can come into play. And so it's really, a lot, again, an invitation to look at the gray areas to really and see what's, see what's wise for oneself. So these, these, are, these are the ethical precepts for you know, what I also like to think about is that they're, they're the guidelines for developing integrity, for developing integrity, harmlessness, and, and basically a very simple warmth and protection that we offer to others. And if you'd like to practice them in the next week, that would be wonderful. And here are, here are just a few sort of reminders and sort of recapitulations of some of what, what's been said. It may be helpful if you want to do this to either take one or two precepts, possibly take them all. For many people, it works more easily if you just take one or two that you particularly want to focus on, particularly one that might come up a lot like speech. And so if you'd like to take on the precepts, you can say, I'll take on the precepts in the next week, and maybe I want to focus on one or two of them. It would mean, it might mean in the morning, setting the intention to follow the precept. It might mean setting it right now in your mind. I'm going to follow the precept and finding ways to keep on reminding yourselves. Write the precepts on your hand. Put a piece of paper around your wrist. Um, have a special object that you wear for the week that reminds you of the precepts. I don't know what that would be, but you know. Uh, find some way of reminding yourself each day and maybe even more often. Just, you know, it's a lot of what is powerful in practice is the factor of intention just to remind us. And then we sometimes get alerted. So if you wanted to remind yourself in the morning, at noon, and at dinner for 30 seconds, if that wasn't too obsessive, <laughs> uh, it'd be a great way to do it. So that's the first thing. Set intention and try to bring it into, into your lives. You might even take these precepts and just read them in the morning. Look at them. And then try to be alert for the gray areas. And the invitation is when the gray areas appear, start inquiring. You know, what's going on? Okay, what's, what's going on, Donald? You, want, you were in a hurry to get here this morning and you almost went through a red light. Was that, was that the second precept about being greedy? I don't know. It's getting in the gray area. So what's... I had awful traffic this morning. <laughs> it was bad. I won't, I won't go into that. I mean, I had to wait five minutes for a train in Berkeley. <laughs> anyway, so 
So, but th these are the moments, right, when we when we actually get in the sometimes get in the dangerous areas of the presets when we're stressed a little bit, right? I don't want to be there on time, you know, and so forth. And um, so it's really to be be alert for the gray areas uh, and do some inquiry. Say what's there, what's present in me when I'm in this gray area. It's not so much to judge ourselves, but it's really to inquire. That's the spirit of the practice, to keep on inquiring over and over again. And in the course of that, we find out things. We find out things about the meaning of the precepts. We also find things about our intentions. Bring in the social dimension to some extent. What does that mean for you? It's a challenging dimension. What would it mean to work more with the precepts in a way that's not just entirely my own personal actions? What would it mean in the context of my family or community or even the larger society? And again, it might be good to start small there. And so, hopefully, for many of you, there'll be a wonderful week of exploration, and you'll be able to tell Sylvia all about it. <laughs> so let me stop here and, and invite any uh, questions or reflections or comments. Thank you. Please, David. David, it's, it's uh, quite touching. And did you want to add something quickly? I, I had some thoughts, but uh, I'll just add that yeah. very quickly. Just Please, that, yeah. Um, I've noticed in what you said about when you didn't use speech, how the actions spoke for themselves. I've been noticing that sometimes speech can become a substitute for action. Yeah. I have a thought, you know, and and I will feel like I've done something when really all I've done is have a thought. Yeah. It's a yeah, and, and your example made me remember that the, the spirit of the precepts, you know, the, the way it's expressed here, it's expressed negatively, you know, as which runs the risk of tapping into a few thousand years of Judeo-Christian heritage, <laughs> which which may have happened. <laughs> so, um, but they also can be expressed positively. You know, and and you may want to think of the precepts more positively. Like the precepts are not so much about not harming, but they're about cultivating kindness or love. The first precept, the second one, generosity, especially. The third, uh, maybe caring. You know, and um, the speech, the same thing, caring. And it, if that's the core, then it can let us know that when you gave your your coat. That was that was working with the precepts. That was helping in a wonderful way. That's that's 
a very strong ethical action. It made me, makes me think of the um, the way, I don't know if I mentioned this yet one of the other times, but there's this beautiful story in the Zen tradition in which um, two brothers are talking and one of them says, what does the Bodhisattva do? You know, and, you know, you might think the Bodhisattva would, you know, what, climb buildings with one leap, <laughs> go up buildings with one leap, stop crashing automotives and locomotives and, you know, end wars. But what does the Bodhisattva do? The Bodhisattva slightly moves the pillow to rearrange the pillow in the middle of the night to ease the head a little bit. That's what it actually is said in the text. It's a very simple, subtle action that has profound dimension of ethics. It's caring. And I, I think the other thing that your example points to is just the way that um, in some situations, sometimes silence is better. This is what you were saying, that, that part of what we can do when we do the speech practice is we can really see what our intentions are. And it's, it's very valuable just to wait for a moment and say, okay, what am I trying to say here? It's a very powerful practice. You know, that I, I know I've been consciously doing for a while that when someone asks me something, I might just take that slightest split second just to see what's about to come and whether it's really helpful. You know, and we feel a lot of pressure to speak, you know, and maybe in sub-subcultures, if you don't speak within a split second, someone else will intervene, <laughs> you know. Uh, especially, I think New York is like that. Um, and so you have to be, you know, maybe be a, not quite as many split seconds if you're doing this practice in New York. But, but really to, maybe out here it's a little easier. Uh, and just to, just to let that um, quiet time be there for a little while in speaking and see what one's intentions are. What am I going to say? Do I really want to say this? It's a powerful practice, and especially maybe in situations where it's a little awkward. You know, we have, I'm, I'm very aware, because I, I just learned, like, yes, well, two days ago, that a close friend of mine is dying. It's, it's uh, very sad, and, and I'm seeing how um, there's this urge to speak, and in that situation, speech, speech, speech is awkward sometimes. You know, it's like we want to speak, but we don't know quite how to speak sometimes. And so I think, like, your example is helpful there, too, because it's really to kind of part of the practice of the speech precept is to really be aware of those tendencies. And maybe if, I w- if I'm really aware, you know, I don't know what to speak. Oh, here's, here's something I might say. Oh, no, that's too, too, too this or that. And then we come back and we can actually, oh, What's most important is that I really express caring, and I can express that nonverbally. I can express it by my presence in some way, and I don't necessarily have to speak. So that can be, that's that's valuable, David. Thank you. Please, yeah. 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 I know. Well, you know, maybe you can. Maybe you can. To did you want to add something? Well, not not to put you on the spot, but yes, one yeah. one can say. Imagine I'm holding you because yeah. it is what I most want to give to you right now. Yeah. And then be silent. If you're yeah. going to be filling the phone time with talking, you can also fill it with non-talking. I mean, if it's a yeah. matter of economics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can say, give, we often say, oh, hug so-and-so for me because they're there with the person. Yeah. You can do it. To the person you're speaking yeah. I have a friend who does uh, online teaching, and she's very interested in not having internet or email communication just be one-dimensional. And she tries in different ways to bring in, as it were, the heart and the body into her communications and says, this is what I'm feeling now. 
you know, this, it's almost like this is what's going on in these other dimensions and tries to communicate that. Of course, one's doing that uh, through words, but it's, it's a way that uh, some of those other dimensions can come in. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because all of a sudden we have this, I mean, I, th- I think it's very ironic that we, you know, many of us have been trying to explore mind, body, heart integration, and all of a sudden we have this medium which is kind of taking over a lot of our lives that that's, doesn't let that integration happen quite so easily. It's, uh, it's um, interesting, ironic in some ways, I mean, and something to be very aware of in others. Please, yeah, and, and, and you'll be next, okay. Please, yeah. Yeah. In most of the classical traditions, yeah. deep embeddedness and reflection on the foundational ethic mm-hmm. often produces more awareness of suffering and the causes of suffering. Mm. Did you speak to that? Yeah. Did everyone hear the question? It was sometimes in traditional teaching that working with the ethical precepts, if I can paraphrase, um, can put one in touch with a lot of suffering, basically, and, and, and can let one be aware of the causes of suffering if you're reflecting on non-harming and maybe reflect on that principle of one who loves oneself will not harm another, which the corollary, I guess, would be one who harms another may not love oneself or does not love oneself or others. In some, the love is absent in some way when there's violence or harming. And I think that's the question is really what to do about that. I think this is where that we think about the threefold aspect of the training, that, we, that the, the ethics... Uh, the ethical foundations are combined with the mindfulness, the meditation practice, and the wisdom teachings. You know, as, I, as I've really been presenting it that way, I've been presenting the precepts and saying, saying, well, we need to use mindfulness to really see what's there when we go into a gray area and to really inquire. And that those are abilities or competences that we have to develop through uh, mindfulness training. You can't, we can't just ask ourselves to be mindful without doing some training. And so I think that the, uh, and so I think what you're partly, uh, part of a response would be that the, we, we develop these other tools to work with suffering. And of course, suffering and the understanding of suffering and the transformation of suffering is at the heart of the whole practice, right? And so we could see the whole teaching as sort of a response to that question. How do we, you know, how do we understand the, the suffering that we have that's there in the world, and how do we work with it so we're not so um, overwhelmed or so bewildered or so confused? And how, in this, in, because the, the answer that we get is that even though there's suffering, it's the, the kindness and the love and the wisdom are deeper. That's sort of, we might say, the very optimistic message of this that, that suffering is workable and that. The, you, you might say that the ethical precepts express the nature of a highly developed person, that the highly developed person spontaneously is ethical. doesn't have to follow the precepts, but it's just part of the internalized sense of who we are. You know, just in the way that many of us may not, you know, we would just never deliberately kill something, right? It gets internalized after a while. And so I think that the, the whole of practice is really a, a response to that. It's really f- finding that the kindness and the love and the understanding uh, can work with the suffering and are, are deeper, than the, deeper than the sadness or the suffering, even though sometimes it may not feel like that. So, um, Chris, if it can be real brief, because we're at the... And I'll have to give a brief response. Yeah. The last one, um, it, I talk about as sometimes having clear intention or it's the appropriateness of the speech. Uh, sometimes it's talked about as appropriateness 
or clear intention. Uh, sometimes it's talked about as the absence of the factor of distractedness in speech. Let me make a few announcements. Actually, the, the first announcement is very related to your question. It's that um, I, I brought, I'll have to bring these back. Um, Diana Winston and I, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, are doing a day-long retreat called Healing Myself, I Heal the World, a day of practice for caregivers and activists. It's going to be February 8th here, and you met Diana last week, so you know, and we're those of, us, those of you who haven't seen us together in action <laughs> can do so. We, we've, we've been working together for three or maybe, well, we've been working together about, about 10 years and teaching together about four years. So we, we, um, we, I think we work well together. So I'll just not give it too heavy an advertisement. Um, any case, um, it's, it says for caregivers and activists, but I just want to say that it's really for anyone who, who values the integration of the work of taking care of oneself and serving the world, you know, or, or what wants to work with that balance. Because we're going to look at questions like, like you're mentioning, burnout, suffering's too much. The world's suffering so much, how can I go to a movie? You know, or a lot, and we'll give a lot of tools that can really help with that balance. So I hope I, hope I see a lot of you, or we see a lot of you, and I'll I have, I'm gonna, I didn't leave the flyers uh, there yet. It's on the Spirit Rock calendar, but I just thought, uh, so they're right up here if you want the, all the information. And also, let's see, two, uh, two or three other things. I'm, um, as you know, I'm going to be starting to teach on Fridays, and you should have this be your first priority, but if you want to do two, go on Friday. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be doing the Fridays. It's a, it's a yoga and meditation class. 10 to 12.15, uh, same basis, just drop in when you feel like it. So if you want to start moving to two mornings a week, if your schedule permits that, now might be the time. <laughs> and lastly, uh, and I'll be doing every Friday, at least February and March, uh, the first few weeks of March. And another thing, I got a letter from um, a student of mine who lives in Arizona who works with a Tibetan Lama and um, I'll be brief here, but she's very interested. The Lama is either going to be, is a 30-year-old Lama named, let's see, um, who I have not met, Kenpo Lodro Taye Rinpoche, and I have the biography. And if any of you, by any chance, have uh, possible housing for a Lama and his translator from Arizona, uh, for, I, don't, I think it may be for a bit of a period, but if any of you have that situation, come up, come up and talk to me afterwards. I think uh, it'd be in the Bay Area and it'd be in March. So this may, may or may not ring a bell, but they're looking for a place to, to house the Lama. So you would, you would um, you'd get teachings all the time for <laughs> however long that period is. Um, Friday night. Uh, is the singles sangha with Nina Wise. If you don't know Nina Wise, it'll probably be pretty amazing. I, I can't imagine what she would do on a singles night. <laughs> anyway, that <laughs> I mean, she is totally hilarious, and she, I mean, it's almost worth going even if you're not single. <laughs> I don't think they check at the door. There's no, no California IDs that can determine that. Um, and the weekend, uh, there's a Right Livelihood on Saturday with Eric Kolvig and Hadassarin. Eric's a wonderful teacher, lives also in the Southwest, who is a good friend. And uh, then Sunday, he's also going to do a, uh, a day-long. So Eric is a wonderful teacher who's uh, been based in uh, New Mexico for quite a while uh, and particularly works with gay and lesbian sanghas. And so, um, wonderful teacher, but wonderful for everyone. So, I'll just uh, end with that. Did you have any announcements, further ones? I totally blank mind. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other announcements? Okay, well, let's, let's just sit uh, briefly. And let be present the what was most insightful or helpful from 
any part of the morning from the sitting or the discussion, the talk. Usually it's, it's those one or two most important things which we can really take and keep moving, keep, uh, keep working in our consciousness. In particular, if there's an intention, and in this case, particularly to do the work with the precepts in the next week. If you want to set that intention further right now, that would be great. Without any pressure, and it may not be appropriate to do that practice in the next week, and that's fine too. So we dedicate the time here together As in the consideration of the precepts, we know that we practice both for ourselves and for others, and that our practice does have an impact on the world. Sometimes it's hard to see what that is, but it does have a huge impact. And so we ask that the fruits of our time together be further dedicated for the awakening and freedom and goodness of all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.